Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 5, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Last week we ended by studying the Shema, which is perhaps the central tenet of the Hebrew faith. And the Shema, which is a, a, a combination of a prayer and a statement of fact and faith, actually occurs a couple of chapters ahead of where we are right now. Uh, the Shema begins in Deuteronomy 6. We're in Deuteronomy 4. But the reason we even looked at it is the repetition of it in Deuteronomy and all throughout the Bible we find the word Shema in Hebrew, that's usually translated into English as hear or hearken. And what we learned was that hear or hearken are not supposed to be passive words. Okay? They don't mean to just kind of notice a bird chirping or, 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 or notice a peaceful melody of a waterfall, you know, as we kind of think of in our modern Western way of thinking. Inherent in the Hebrew word Shema is to act upon what is said, what you hear. And depending on the context of the passage, the word means to hear and obey, or listen and then act, all right, or observe, all right, as in observing a holiday, meaning to take part in it. Okay. Now further, what Deuteronomy is generally about, and Deuteronomy 4 in particular, is Moses making an impassioned address to the new generation of Israel to take to heart and to go forward with everything that they had learned and witnessed. For all practical purposes, we are hearing Moses' last words to those who he cared for, for those last 40 years. Moses knows that his death is but a few days away, so he wants to impart to Israel the national identity they have been given by God. And this national identity is all wrapped up in the God of Israel, his covenants and his laws, and it can, it can only be maintained by the people's determination to obey and love Yehovah. Now what Moses is saying is set in the context of the history of Israel. Because it is this history that itself offers the proof of what he's saying. And it offers the proof that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Okay? Deuteronomy 4 is a long chapter. Right? And we'll, we won't finish it this week because I think if I were forced to choose only 10 chapters out of the almost 1,200 chapters that forms our modern Bible, and, and out of those 10 chapters, I had to be able to define Yehovah's character and his plan and his justice and, and, and those God principles that were the most powerful and central and important to the lives of all of his believers, this chapter would be near the top of the list of ten. Therefore, before we read this monumental chapter, I want to say some things tonight of a personal note. Sometimes I get frustrated and discouraged at the current state of the church that I love and of which I'm a part. And along with the Lord blessing me as he has so many of you with an understanding that all the word of God is valid. All of it. Right? And that Yeshua meant what he said. All right, when he told us he did not come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, and that anybody that said he did is going to be what? Least in the kingdom of heaven. And those who teach it and obey it are what? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But I know a lot of us have come to a realization that the church we so dearly love has strayed 
long way from God. And we Christians, you see, have become a replica of the Jewish religious society in which Yeshua lived. A society that claims and proclaims for God, but at the same time generally prefers to observe our man-made doctrines and traditions. All right, instead of the rather plain, straightforward proclamations and instructions given to us in the Lord's written word. You know, I'm reminded from great biblical teachers of the past and the present, whom I study and rely upon, that being a teacher means that some foundational principles and facts have to be restated over and over in varied contexts so that they can finally be comprehended and internalized by the students. All right. Therefore, as your teacher, I want to take a few minutes this evening to remind you of just why it is so critical for us to become advocates of the Torah, the Old Testament, as much as we are the new, of course. Okay, Israel, the Jewish people, and the entire body of the Holy Scriptures that we call the Bible. And I, I hope to do this in the spirit of Moses, who is not giving out new information for the most part, but rather he's reminding people of what they've already heard right? and, and, and might already know. So critical is it that it must remain at the forefront of their thinking and our thinking at all times throughout all their generations and especially for this second generation of the Exodus that Moses is addressing here in Deuteronomy. You know, sometimes in our little world of Torah class, we forget that the largest part of the church thinks somewhat differently than we do about the Holy Scripture. And I don't know what's happened here recently, but I've had quite a spate of emails and personal phone calls from people who said, you know, I'm getting attacked right and left about what I know is the truth, that the whole Bible still stands. And I'm convinced that the reason that this is even happening is not only because of the time we're in, but that this, and I hate using the term movement because it sounds like a fad, but that's not what I mean. This, this, this era we're in, this movement that, could loosely be called the Hebrew Roots Movement, whatever you want to attach to it, is gained traction. It really has. And I guess there were something like a dozen Passover at churches all over Brevard County. All right, it's really, people are starting to understand all right, what they're supposed to be doing. But it's also bringing out of the woodwork the defenders of the traditions. And um, telling people that teachers like me are trying to turn you into Jews, that we are Judaizers, all right, and that that's what you are learning, all right, um, and that you're about to give up your Savior, all right, and and that you are being taught that in order to be a believer, you have to obey all the law and all of this kind of stuff, but that's because they're defending what they believe, and they really don't understand. These are not evil people. These are not evil people. When you're confronted with them, don't think that way. All right. But they are people who the Lord has just not dealt with yet all right, to show them all right, that, that, uh, that his word is what we need to, to live from and not a, a lot of doctrines that have been developed over time. Um. It's sad that we have to constantly defend ourselves. It's sad that we have to repeat ad nauseum to friends and family that we've not joined a cult. The cult of the Bible readers. Oh, Lord, help us. Okay. Or renounce Jesus. 
Okay. And all this is because we've chosen to study the Old Testament portion of the Holy Bible and recognize that it's a Hebrew document. Just as simple as that. Okay. We can also rather easily forget that the vast bulk of modern Christian doctrine is at its core anti-Semitic. And it declares straight away that Israel has been replaced by Gentile Christians, that when God came to earth as Yeshua, he changed most of his former rules and principles. He abolished all of his covenants. Okay, And, 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 and that for us to even open the books of the Old Testament, let alone actually study and take it seriously, is tantamount to discarding our Savior and returning to the law, whatever that means in their minds. Nowhere, of course, does the Scripture say any such thing. But that's the basic problem of following doctrine, at least as far as doctrine is defined in the modern, kind of the modern usage of the word. Not the way it used to mean, but the way it means now. Because language changes. This type of Christianity is often at odds with the original and ancient scripture-based Christianity. Okay. It's ironic that we seem to understand, because we've been taught it since we were in Sunday school, that even though the Jews of Messiah's day claimed that their traditions were but good and proper scriptural interpretations, in fact, too much of it was but Hebrew religious leaders espousing man-made philosophies that surrounded political realities of the day, and it embodied their own personal agendas. Okay? And it also enabled them to, to form separate groups that were loyal primarily to them and too many times for reasons of personal gain. Okay. The irony of it is that the church has done essentially the same thing for too long. And rather than recognize it for what it is, we've embraced it as normal and good. Okay. Just as ancient Jews were encouraged to study the Jewish traditions, the Talmud, and discouraged from the studying all but a few selected passages of the Torah that seem to validate their traditions, so are too many modern Christians encouraged to accept various denominational doctrines without question, and then discouraged from studying anything but the selected passages out of the New Testament, usually the Gospels. In one of the seminal Christian documents of the modern era. Late in the 1800s, one of the eminent European church leaders at that time, a fellow named Adolf Harnack, said this. He said, to reject the Old Testament in the second century was a mistake the church rightly resisted. But to retain it in the 16th century was a fate from which the Reformation couldn't escape. But to still preserve it, the Old Testament, in the 19th century as one of the canonical, in other words, one of the canons of Protestantism is the result of religious and ecclesiastical paralysis. In other words, while very early on the church had no choice but to retain the Old Testament because that's all there was, all right, until the approach of the third century, all right, um, to Harnack's mind, which was 19th century Europe, there is no further excuse for Protestants, at least, to retain any portion of the Old Testament and consider it as valid biblical text. Okay, That it was only by religious paralysis, as he called it, that the church didn't finally and explicitly state that the Old Testament is outdated, it has no place whatsoever in the lives of Christians. His argument was very well received and in fact it became accepted as the standard by which the Western Church formed its theologies and doctrines and so the door has since that time been slammed tightly closed on the Old Testament to Western Christianity. Now thankfully, not all respected theologians fell prey to this misguided but popular liberal mindset. About a hundred years after Harnack's remarks, one such dissenter, Dr. Walter Kaiser, made this statement 
that so eloquently and powerfully sums up the current state of mainstream Christianity, a state and mindset from which it is my goal in Torah class to escape. And I'll quote from Walter Kaiser. He says this, No matter how great the uniformity of opinion has been, from the New Testament writers down to the Reformation, no matter how great the difficulties in answering the formal and material questions posed here, the Old Testament remains the most central and decisive problem for Christian theology. How we respond to this problem will automatically set much of our Christian theology, whether we do so in a deliberate or in an unreflective fashion. The implications of this move in theological, theological construction are massive. Our answers to this problem, how we think of the Old Testament, is going to decide how we understand Jesus Christ and his historical character, his Jewish context, his divine validation. It decides the church's view of itself as the church of God, as an element in the mysterion of God's saving action in history. It decides our interpretation of salvation given us in Jesus Christ, our estimate of earthly and temporal life. It concerns the relation of the church of Jesus Christ to the chosen people of Israel. Our whole understanding of the kingdom of God and therefore also of the universality of the Christian faith the Christian church and Christianity, it's all determined by what we think of the Old Testament and how we handle it. Thus, it's difficult to think of very many areas of Christian theology that are not affected in a major way either by the inclusion or the deliberate omission of the Old Testament from its systemization. Moreover, when it is recalled that over Three-fourths of the total Bible is found in the Old Testament. It is enough to make one pause before cavalierly bypassing this most extensive record of God's revelation to mankind. Yeah, pretty powerful statement. Pretty true. In other words, the Old Testament is the formative document out of which the New Testament came. The Old Testament is the context from which we can understand Jesus, his mission of salvation, what salvation amounts to, what the church should look like, even how we define just what this entity called the kingdom of God actually is. Kaiser says that how Christians value the Old Testament or just simply discard it as worthless, is going to determine every element of our belief system. It's going to have an effect. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you for our era, our era, within the church, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there is no more decisive question for us to wrestle with than whether to accept all of the Word of God or to sever away Everything given as holy writ that comes before the book of Matthew. Do we search out and act upon the actual oracles given directly from the Lord in the Torah, or do we consider parts of certain books that serve to validate hundreds of years of theological philosophies developed by the institutions who claim to govern Christendom? Do we shrink our Bibles even further by discarding the 50% of the New Testament passages that are simply Old Testament quotes. Boy, our Bibles are going to get little. Because if the Old Testament is dead and gone and nailed to the cross, then how do we even justify retaining that portion of its contents that forms more than half of the New Testament? See, this is the core of the message Moses is bringing to Israel in Deuteronomy. Moses asks the Israelites, 
Will you trust and do the entire word of God, Israel? Or will you return to men's doctrines and elemental spirits and worship nature like it was back in Egypt? Will you listen to and obey the Lord or will you merely condescend in order to retain the benefits of this godly society and culture to which you now belong? Will you realize that the Lord's wisdom is the ultimate truth or will you choose to value value your intellect or the intellect of your leaders as superior to the divine? Moses says, one of these two choices is life and the other is death. So choose life. So let's focus ourselves now with the Lord's help on this mighty fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. Open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 200. Moses says this. Now Israel, listen to the laws and the rulings I am teaching you in order to follow them so that you'll live. Then you will go in and take possession of the land that Adonai, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In order to obey the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai, your God, which I'm giving you, don't you add to what I'm saying. Don't subtract from it. You saw with your own eyes what Adonai did at Baal Peor. That Adonai destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. But you who stuck with Adonai your God are still alive today, every one of you. Look, I have taught you laws and rulings just as Adonai my God ordered me so that you can behave accordingly in the land where you're going in order to take possession of it. Therefore, observe them, follow them, for then all peoples will see you as having wisdom and understanding. When they hear of all these laws, they'll say, oh, this great nation is surely a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God as close to them as Adonai our God is whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has laws and rulings as just as this entire Torah which I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves diligently as long as you live so that you won't forget what you saw with your own eyes. So that you these things won't vanish from your hearts. Rather, make them known to your children, your grandchildren. The day you stood before Adonai your God at Horeb, When Adonai said to me, gather the people to me and I'm going to make them hear my very words so that they'll learn to hold me in awe as long as they live on earth so that they will teach their children. You approached me. You stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain blazed with fire to the heart of heaven with darkness, clouds, a thick mist. Then Adonai spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no shape. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant to you, which he ordered you to obey the ten words. And he wrote them on two stone tablets. And at that time, Adonai ordered me to teach you laws and rulings so that you would live by them in the land that you are entering in order to take possession of it. Therefore, watch out for yourselves. Since you did not see a shape of any kind on that day, Adonai spoke to you in Horeb from the fire. Don't become corrupt. Don't make yourselves a carved image having the shape of any figure. Not a representation of a human being, male or female. Or a representation of any animal on earth. Or a representation of any bird that flies in the air. Or a representation of anything that creeps creeps along the ground. Or a representation of any fish in the water that swims below the shoreline. 
For the same reason, don't look up at the sky, at the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in the sky and be drawn away to worship and serve them. Adonai, your God, has allotted these things to all the peoples under the entire sky. No, you, your Adonai has taken and, and brought out the smelting furnace. He's brought you out of Egypt to be a people of inheritance for him, as you are today. But Adonai was angry with me on account of you. And he swore that I would not cross the Jordan and go into that good land which Adonai, your God, is giving you to inherit. Rather, I must die in this land, not cross the Jordan. But you are to cross it. You're to take possession of that good land. Watch out for yourselves so that you won't forget the covenant of Adonai, your God, which he made with you. And make yourselves a a carved image, a representation of anything forbidden to you by Adonai your God. Because Adonai your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. When you have had children and grandchildren lived a long time in the land, become corrupt, and you've made a carved image, a representation of something, and thus done what's evil in the sight of Adonai your God and provoked him, I call on the sky and the earth as witnesses against you today that you'll quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You'll not prolong your days there, but you'll be completely destroyed. Adonai'll scatter you among the peoples, among the nations to which God will lead you away. You'll be left few in number. There you'll serve gods, which are the product of human hands made of wood and stone, which can't see or hear or eat or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and your being. In your distress, when all these things have come upon you in the Acherit Hayamim, the world to come, you will return to Adonai your God and listen to what he says. Because Adonai your God's a merciful God. He'll not fail you, destroy you, And he won't forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them. Indeed, inquire about the past before you were born. Since the day God created human beings on the earth from one end uh, of, of heaven to the other, has there ever been anything as wonderful as this? Has anyone heard of anything like it? Did any other people ever hear the voice of God? speaking out of fire as you have heard and stayed alive? Or has God ever tried to go and take for himself a nation from the very bowels of another nation by means of ordeals and signs and wonders? War, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, great terrors, like all that Anani your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. This was shown to you so that you would know that Adonai is God. There is no other beside him. From heaven, he caused you to hear his voice in order to instruct you. And on earth, he caused you to see his great fire. You heard his very words coming out from the fire. Because he loved your ancestors, chose their descendants after them, brought you out of Egypt with his presence and great power in order to drive out ahead of you nations greater and stronger than you so that he could bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance, as is the case today. Know today and establish it in your heart that Adonai is God. In heaven above, on earth below, there's no other. Therefore, you're to keep his laws and his commands, which I'm giving you today, so that it will go well with you and with your children after you, so that you will prolong your days in the land Adonai your God is giving you forever. Then Moses separated three cities on the east side of the Jordan toward the sunrise, to which a killer might flee. That is, someone who kills by mistake, a person who he didn't previously hate. And upon fleeing to one of these cities, he might live there. These cities were Bitzer in the desert, in the flatland for the Reubenites, Ramot and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Manashites. 
This is the Torah which Moses placed before the people of Israel. These are the instructions, laws, and rulings which Moses presented to the people of Israel after they had come out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan River, in the valley across Beit Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. From Aroer on the edge of the Arnon Valley to Mount Sion, that is Mount Hermon, and with all the Arabah beyond the Jordan eastward, all the way to the Dead Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. After Moses explains that Israel is to obey for their own sakes what's about to follow and that nothing that should be added, nothing should be removed or altered from these instructions, he says in verse 5 that these rules are to be obeyed inside the promised land, Canaan, that they're soon going to be living in. Now we talked briefly last week about Hebrew verb tenses. And that in biblical Hebrew, there are no such things as past, present, and future tenses like there are in English. Rather, there's what scholars have labeled as perfect and imperfect that more denotes, in the one case, an ongoing process, and in the other case, a process that's been completed. And at the beginning of verse 5, we get a very nice example of this issue of verb tenses and the problem it causes in interpretation. Normally, the English translation of this verse, at verse 5, is something like, See, I have imparted to you laws and rules. See, this past tense is usually employed, indicating that the laws and rules Moses is speaking about were given in the past. But that's not the meaning of the Hebrew tense employed here. Rather, this is the imperfect, sometimes called incomplete, tense indicating that Moses is speaking in terms of an ongoing process. So a better translation might be, I am imparting to you laws and rules. Better, but still not precise, because this is an ongoing process. This means that some laws were given, some are still being given. And this continuing process of giving the laws and defining their meaning and application has been occurring since Mount Sinai, or as it's called here a couple of times, Mount Horeb. All right, and it's not over. Now, an important principle that of course carries over into the New Testament is presented in verse 6. And it is that the proof of Israel's loyalty to Yehovah will be in that those who hear the Lord's laws do the Lord's laws. Don't confuse this proof with it being the same thing, by the way, as a sign. The sign of Israel's relationship with the Lord is male circumcision from Abraham's covenant and today now, since Mount Sinai, the observance of Shabbat. Okay. The proof, that is the sum of the outward evidence of their faith in God, is in how well they acted it out. The New Testament version of this principle is found in the book of James. James 2.17 says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But somebody will say, well, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the proof of your faith is the acceptance of Christ. No. The sign of your acceptance of Christ, the sign of the new covenant, is the Holy Spirit that's in you. which, by the way, is invisible and nobody can see, including yourself. Therefore, the proof of your faith 
in Christ, in our case, says Moses and says James, is in the fruit it produces. Your works. And works generally means good deeds towards men and then full obedience to the commands of God. It's all wrapped up into one nice ball. It's not that the Lord needs to see your works as the proof He's looking for. He's the one who made the decision to give you the Holy Spirit. So He's already determined the status of your faith. That's over. Rather, the proof in the form of your visible and tangible works is it so others will benefit. That's what it's for. As it says in Deuteronomy 4.6, Observe the laws faithfully, for that will be the proof of your wisdom and discernment to other people who on hearing these laws will say, Oh, surely this is a great nation. So while on the one hand the Hebrews didn't seek to proselytize, they didn't seek to convert, it was the living out of their faith in view of non-Hebrews that God says would be attractive to those foreigners. I've stated many times that the most effective and really only method of bringing the good news to the Jewish people of Israel is to live out your faith and allow them to see your love. Or better, Yeshua's love in you. Not just to quote to them New Testament Bible passages. Okay. In reality, it's probably also the best and most biblically authentic method to bring the gospel to pretty much anybody, including your family. Moses is in the midst here of drawing out two points. First, that the giving of the law specifically to Israel indicates the creation of an unprecedented relationship between God and a particular nation of people. It has no parallel in history. It's not present in any other society. And second, that the laws of the Lord are superior to all man-made laws and principles and the justice inherent within His ordinances is perfection. That in reality, God's laws are just a reflection of God. His character was made known and echoed in His laws. You really want to know who God is? Then learn His laws and commands and do them. That's how you'll know. Next, Moses gives a warning against idolatry. The basis for the prohibition against making God idols is explained in a little more detail here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it's this. Since the Lord did not appear to you in any kind of physical form, he says, Israel, at Mount Sinai, then you shouldn't try to manufacture some kind of physical form to represent God. It's just that simple. You've never seen him. So what are you trying to do making something that looks like him? After all, if you've never seen what God looks like, how do you do that? Rather, since God made his presence known to them in words, recall God spoke audibly to Israel at Mount Sinai, then Israel should pass along the knowledge of Yehovah to future generations in words and deeds, not in God symbols and icons all right, and images, because that's what the heathen do. You see, this was such a radical departure from the norms of all the world cultures of that day. Okay? The thought was that without a God image, without an idol, there was no way to worship that God. Idols were handed down from generation to generation as a means of instructing family members about their family gods. Jehovah says, don't you make an image of me because I'm not of this world. Nothing you could make could ever, ever capture my essence. Now let me make a point here that I think might be helpful to explain just how it is then that we are to perceive the Lord, since we're not to do it with visible images. A.J. Herschel, I think, captures it beautifully. He says this, The essence 
of Jewish religious thinking does not lie in entertaining the concept of God, but in the ability to articulate a memory of moments of illumination by his presence. Israel is not a people of definers. They're a people of witnesses. In other words, the people of Israel actually witnessed what God said to them, actually witnessed God's great deeds on their behalf. And then that information was reliably passed on generation to generation to generation. It was by means of eyewitness proof from hundreds of thousands of millions of ordinary people that God's Torah is indeed a direct oracle from the Lord. Neither Judaism nor Christianity bases our religion on speculative thought and grand religious philosophies, although we've all been infected by this over the centuries. And part of Torah class's goal is to see if we can't learn so that we can distinguish between truth and tradition. Rather, our faith is to be based on actual experience with God both the experience of our faith fathers and our own personal experience with God. The Israelites actually heard God's words. Believers of Yeshua have actually received the Lord's Holy Spirit. It's not a theory. Both of these experiences are relationship-based. Never was the religion of the Jews based on some mechanical following of a legal code. Never. It wasn't based on sacred God symbols. It was based on a historical, experiential relationship with God. Following those laws was merely the proper response to that relationship. Just as a modern believer's proper response to our salvation ought to be obedience to Him as well. Therefore, says Moses, you Israel, you saw nothing of God at Mount Sinai, but you did hear his voice. You heard his words. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't a visual experience that night that went along with it. The Israelites indeed saw smoke and fire. The sky turned dark as night. The idea is that the Lord's presence made a pretty unforgettable impact on them because it was designed to do that. Nature itself was affected because of God's power in his presence. It was supposed to elicit awe and reverence and a very healthy fear. I just hate it when I hear some well-meaning Christians say that since the advent of Christ, we have no reason to fear God. Whoa. There's just not too many more doctrines more dangerous than that one. Don't fear God. You better fear God. All the apostles feared God. Goodness, even the first Gentiles who accepted the God of the Jews, you know what they were called? God-fearers. Verse 15 continues this admonition by Moses to make no image of Yehovah because the Israelites had never even seen God's shape. Now keep in mind, Moses is not talking... Follow this. He's not talking about making images of false gods, of other people's gods. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay. Is it not interesting that this particular command takes up so much of Moses' agenda at this point? Well, it ought to. Because the failure of this command led to the death of scores of thousands of Israelites out in the wilderness, and it was, would happen again. And again, and again, with alarming regularity, because the people just wouldn't take the warning seriously enough. Now, as concerns God, idolatry is dangerous because it offends His holiness. As concerns men, idolatry is dangerous because God has determined that it's a capital offense. 
Idolatry is dangerous on a whole number of levels. That's the problem with it. I mean, I'm curious. Do you suppose that one day the Israelites who had scrupulously gone and made no images of God at all woke up one morning and started little idol factories and turned them out by the thousands? Is it possible that they went from a determination never to make an never to make idols on Monday, but by Tuesday morning they had a meeting and said, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's start worshiping idols." That's not how we humans operate, is it? Okay, we begin with the determination to obey, but in time it erodes. We start finding reasons to make little compromises here and there. We rationalize it. We debate what the meaning of is is. And we slice that onion thinner and thinner and thinner to prove our case. And pretty soon, we just take a little bit more liberty with it. We look around and we observe that, well, God hadn't struck me down yet. So I guess everything's okay. So I'll just kind of take that next little step. Israel went for centuries skating by, progressively impinging on God's laws, prohibiting idolatry. Nothing terribly bad had happened recently. So they took yet another step. Boom! Exile. And what's interesting is that despite the warnings of the prophets to stop the idolatry or the Israelites would suffer the consequences, the peoples responded with, what idolatry? Who, me? They thought, hey, we all love and worship God. You know, we have these little symbols lying around, but that couldn't be what those commands are about. I mean, they're so harmless. They're cute. But the minute divine judgment struck them, The people whined and cried and yelled out to the Lord, We have sinned! They knew what they'd done. Where am I going with this? Notice some of the examples that followed that the Lord knew that the Hebrews would instantly be attracted to. They'd make use of these images of Him. So He says, Don't go there. Don't do it. Verse 16, no image in any likeness whatsoever. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. A little later in the same verse, no image of a man or a woman. Okay, that would certainly seem to limit religious statues. Verse 17, no image of an animal that lives on earth. Got that. No birds. Got it. Now, when the Hebrews did wind up making God images of cows and birds and all sorts of things, did they actually believe this is what God looked like? No, they didn't believe that. See, the animals were just commonly accepted symbolic representations of God's attributes. Lions, courage and strength. Bulls, strength. Royalty. Okay, They didn't think it was his actual appearance. The Hebrews didn't think God looked like an eagle or a sheep or a brazen serpent. Rather this, but represented that the Lord soared above them in the heavens, that He was gentle and kind on one hand, He could kill or heal as instantly as a snake could strike on the other. The Lord says, sorry, this is idol worship. This is idol worship. Not your decision, it's my decision. Now take a look at verse 18. Uh oh. Another example of a tempting but prohibited object that might be used as a God symbol was fish. Hmm. That couldn't mean my fish. I don't worship fish. You worship fish? I don't worship fish. And I don't even think if God looks like a fish. Of course, neither did they. Now, that other guy's fish symbol, he's wrong. But my fish symbol just reminds me of my faith. My fish symbol reminds me of the work of my Savior, who is God, that he's a fisher of men. It just symbolizes an attribute of God, not God. 
Ooh. You see the problem here? You all know what I'm talking about. Okay, the problem is this. You see, we don't always know when we've crossed over that line in the sand. We just don't know. I'm not sure about it. Okay, and that's because we don't draw the line. And we don't judge when it's been violated. Okay, wearing a fish symbol is not necessarily idol worship, but it can become idol worship. There weren't very many Israelites around in Bible times that even admitted to idol worship. When the prophets beseeched Israel to stop their idol worship, most Israelites wouldn't even acknowledge it because they deceived themselves into believing they had it all under control. That what they were doing might have been kind of close to the line, but it wasn't over the line. Boom! Judgment. And they all thought, oh, we should have known better. We should have known better. Too late. Next, Moses says, don't get into attaching divine characteristics to the stars or the sun or the moon. It's not that these heavenly objects weren't divinely made for divine purposes, because they were. But so are we. We're not divine. Are you into astrology? Be wise. Drop it now. It's a very slippery slope. Look, the essential principle is that we're not to worship any created thing. And since God created everything but Himself, we need to take this stuff seriously. You know, so this prohib- uh, prohibition includes the worship of angels, demons, the winds, the saints, the heavens, the pastors, the teachers, my gosh, even televangelists. And an amazing statement is made in verses 19 and 20. The scriptures say that Israel is not to bow down to the stars and the moon because they were allotted for worship to the other nations. Oh my, what does that mean? See, the idea is that it was natural, but it was wrong, for men to be so awed by those celestial bodies that the response could be little else but to bow down to them. And that if the Lord hadn't given instruction to the contrary, and if he hadn't given himself as the object of worship, men would be drawn to worship those objects like a moth to a flame. Couldn't help themselves. But since he did set Israel apart, since he did take it upon himself to give them something that no other nation had, his Torah and his presence, then it followed that it was Israel's duty to put away worship of these spectacular but created objects and to enjoy the privilege of knowing that the only thing worth worshiping was the imageless, self-existent God, Yehovah. We'll finish up this chapter next week.